Romans chapter 8. First four verses we considered together last Lord's Day. Let me draw your attention to them yet again, but briefly. Verses 1 through 4. We noticed three things. We noticed, number one, a glorious condition. Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. A glorious condition, simply put, summed up in a nutshell, freedom from God's condemnation. There we have it. Truth number two, a glorious salvation. How did God bring about this glorious condition? Freeing us from his condemnation. Well, it was a glorious salvation. We read of it in the third verse. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, our sinful humanity, could not do. What did God do? Be specific, he tells us. By sending his own Son, Jesus Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Not that he was sinful. But He took our full humanity, body and soul, born under the negative consequences of the fall. And God sent Him not only in the likeness of sinful flesh, but He sent Him for sin. That is, as an offering for our sin. And when He was offered upon Calvary's cross, what did God do? Still in verse 3, He condemned. That is, He punished sin in the flesh. Whose flesh? The Lord Jesus Christ. It is a glorious salvation. The third truth, verse 4, a glorious renovation in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What is the righteous requirement of the law? That we love God. That we love our neighbor. Because of Christ's sacrifice, because of our union with Him, that law is now fulfilled in us. How? We walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here's the question. As we just dwell a little further on these verses, here's the question, my friends. Do you live in the now? Verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you live in this now? Last Sunday, I made reference to well-trodden paths in our minds. You know what I'm talking about. Those paths that we travel repeatedly in our minds. Those roads we go down repeatedly, continually, some negative, some positive, far too often negative, bad paths. And yet we go down them, and we've been down them so many times, like they're, they're like channels cut in our minds, and all the water runs into them and runs down these channels continually. And what we need is right thinking. What we need is positive thinking. And what we need is daily thinking that is shaped, molded by this glorious truth. There is therefore now, No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now let me apply this. I applied it last Sunday to the troubled mind, right? 
to the troubled heart and the troubled conscience. Let me take another swing at it. And let me apply it as follows. Let me suggest to you, let me submit to you that living in the now speaks directly to four well-trodden paths in our minds. Number one, it speaks to how we look at our past sins. Do you live in the now? Living in the now shapes how we look at our past sins. Hear these words, please. Repenting of past sins is very good. It's really good. Learning lessons from past sins is really, really good. Facing the consequences. We're free from the condemnation, but not necessarily the consequences. And facing the consequences of past sins is really good. But hear this. Wallowing in past sins is really bad. Many of us wallow in past sins. How do you know if you're wallowing in a past sin? Very simple. The Lord Jesus Christ is hidden from view. You need to live in the now. Hear these words out of Jeremiah 31, 34. God is speaking. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. It doesn't mean that God literally forgets notionally, gone from His mind. No. It means that He forgets our sins in that He no longer holds them against us. He no longer holds them against us or counts them against us. Why? Because He has already held them against the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a well-trodden path of negativity, a bad path, where many of us wallow in past sins. It must be replaced by this positive path, if you like. Our thinking must be shaped and molded by this glorious truth. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me apply it in a second way. It speaks directly to our past failures. This truth, living in the now, speaks to our past failures. Wrong decisions. I've made a few. I mean bad decisions. Parental mistakes, missed opportunities, broken promises, marital shortcomings, and on and on it goes. A long list of failures. Should we learn from our past failures? Yes, certainly. Should we correct our past failures if it is still within our power to do so? Yes, absolutely. But here's the reality. More often than not, we cannot change the past. And here's my question for you. Has your past paralyzed your present? The answer for some of you is yes. I'm not going to mention any names, but for some of you, the answer is yes. Your past has, is paralyzing your present. And you are repeating mistakes. And you are making bad choices. 
and you are sinning. Why? Because you still live in the reality of past failures. And rather than committing to living a God-centered life in the present, the past is paralyzing the present and you're repeating the failures and mistakes of the past. You need to live in the now. We learn from the past. And then we leave it in the hands of an all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good God. I want to speak to a third group of people. It's this. This truth, living in the reality of the now, speaks to our past pains. It shapes how we respond to them. Abuse. Dare I say it. I just did. Abuse. Neglect. Rejection. We bear scars. Do these scars, do these pains shape our identity? If they do, you need to live in the now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are not shaped by what others have done to us in the past. Our identity is not determined by what others have done to us in the past. Our identity is not determined by what others have said about us in the past. Our identity is determined by what our Heavenly Father thinks of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in the now. And this shapes past pain. And fourthly, living in the now shapes our approach to past losses as death cast its long shadow over a loved one. Spouse, parent, child, have relationships crumbled before your very eye? Has your declining health become a daily battle? You need to live in the now. Live in the now. The Christian life always ends well, but it does not always go well. Put that one on your refrigerator. The Christian life always, always, always ends well, but there are no guarantees it will go well, my friend. Here's the guarantee. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. Hope is a Christian virtue. Hope is a Christian grace because so much of what has been promised to us, so much of what our Heavenly Father has extended to us, we have it simply on the basis of a pledge, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We have not yet entered into the full enjoyment of it. Live in the now. There is, yes, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What will that mean for the future? And that reality will shape those negative thoughts, those channels into which all of our thoughts are drained with a glorious thought that the best is yet to come. There you have it. There's the rest of the conclusion to last week's sermon. I ran out of time. That happens once in a while. But now you have it. And I hope God will impress it upon our hearts. Does it shape how you look at your past sins? 
Does it shape how you look at your past failures? Does it shape how you look at your past pains? Does it shape how you look at your past losses? Do you live in this now? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Three glorious truths, a glorious condition, a glorious salvation, and a glorious renovation. Paul doesn't stop there. He picks it up where we left off now in verse 5. Follow with me as I go as far as verse 9. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Here's where I want to begin. It's with a very simple question. A question that perplexes me regularly. Here it is. What is a Christian? Does that one ever trouble you? What, what, is a, what, is a, what is a Christian? Or let me, let me put a different, slightly different slant on it. What does a Christian look like? What, what, what constitutes being a Christian? There are evangelical Christians, Catholic Christians, Orthodox Christians, Coptic Christians, Reformed Christians, Unitarian Christians, Charismatic Christians, to name but a few. There are Lutherans. Presbyterians, Baptists, Methodists, Anglicans, Wesleyans, Congregationalists, to name but a few. What is a Christian? Is it someone who's baptized? Is it someone who believes in Jesus? Is it someone who's really nice? Is it someone who never does anything really bad? Is it someone who loves his neighbor? Is it someone who's born again? Is it someone who's made a decision for Jesus? Is it someone who's sincere? Is it someone who recites a creed? What is a Christian? John MacArthur is a Christian. Joel Osteen is a Christian. Gets a little confusing, doesn't it? George Bush is a Christian. Bill Clinton is a Christian. Tim Tebow is a Christian. Josh Hamilton is a Christian. Chris Tomlin is a Christian. Carrie Underwood is a Christian. It's confusing. Does it matter what you believe? Does it matter how you behave? Is it simply enough to use the name of Jesus sing catchy songs about Jesus, and wear a cross around your neck. What is a Christian? Paul gives us the best definition going in the text I just read. It actually begins at the end of verse 4. 
Look at what he says there. He identifies two groups of people who walk not according to the flesh. So put them over here. It's group number one. Those who walk according to the flesh. Now put over here group number two. But walk according to the Spirit. So Paul himself clearly identifies two groups of people. It's not rocket science. Group one, or A, if you prefer, right over here, those who walk according to the flesh. Group number two, or B, right over here, those who walk according to the Spirit. To be a Christian is to walk according to the Spirit and not walk according to the flesh. Now, what exactly does that mean? What exactly does that look like? He goes on to explain in our text, verses 5 through 9, and he makes three essential points, and they're building blocks, but he works backwards. Just to confuse us, he works backwards. And so we have building block number one at the top. And then he's going to put building block number two underneath, you guessed it, building block number one. And then he's going to put building block, the foundation number three, right at the bottom. As he explains this difference, as he differentiates, distinguishes between group number one, this is it. And please understand, you're in one or the other. As far as Paul is concerned, great fallacy of recent decades is the fallacy of the individual known as the carnal Christian. You ever heard of him? He does not exist. To be carnal is to be an unbeliever. To be spiritual is to be a believer. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. You either walk according to the flesh or you walk according to the Spirit. You're either here, an unbeliever, or you are here, a believer. Okay, Paul, give me some more information here. Explain to me exactly what you need, what you mean, and he does now with these three building blocks. The first building block is this. He differentiates between them by showing that they have different appetites. Different appetites. Different cravings. All right, there's a good word. Different inclinations. Where does he say that? He says it in the fifth verse. For those who live according to the flesh. So this group over here. Those who live according to the flesh, what do they do? They set their minds on the things of the flesh. Okay. But those who live according to the Spirit, those who walk according to the Spirit, this group over here, what, what do they do? They set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, to make sense out of that, we begin with an obvious question. What does he mean by the mind? They set their minds on the flesh. They set their minds on the Spirit. He's referring to their purposes, their intentions. He is simply referring to what it is they live for. That's it. What do they live for? There are those over here who live for the flesh. And there are those over here who live for for the Spirit. We understand that. We get that. This idea of setting your mind on something. We might say of the author, he has set his mind on completing his manuscript. What do we mean? We mean that's what he now lives for. We mean that is his principal objective. That's what he's striving for, and his life is now shaped by that goal. He has set his mind on completing his manuscript. 
Edward Gibbon spent 26 years writing the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. 26 years. John Milton habitually rose at 4 a.m. to work on Paradise Lost. Ernest Hemingway reworked the ending, just the ending, of A Farewell to Arms 39 times while writing and then 30 more times just for good measure while editing. These authors gave their zeal, their time, their energy to writing. Why? They had set their mind on it. It was their purpose, their intention. We will say of the athlete, she has set her mind on winning gold at the Olympics. What do we mean? We mean that goal now orients her entire life. Everything in her life gets judged, determined, valued on the basis of how it contributes to or detracts from her principal goal, which is the Olympics. I remember the last Summer Olympics, not that long ago, the U.S. swim team. And one of the members of the U.S., the women's U.S. swim team being interviewed and asked about her daily routine and her commitment. Yes, she possessed unbelievable natural ability. Yes, she possessed the right coordination of mind and muscles. If you want to see the wrong coordination of mind and muscles, you come at 2 o'clock to the park this afternoon where some of us will play soccer and frisbee. The wrong coordination of mind and muscles. But obviously he was born with the right coordination. Unbelievable natural ability. But there was more than that. She said she had trained, hear this, 10 hours a day, 6 days a week. For 15 years. Why? She had set her mind on something. This is what compelled her, drove her, stirred her on. This is Paul's point. It's the only point he's making here in this verse. Look, there are two different appetites out there. Two different appetites. What are you living for? If you are living for the things of the flesh, that is all that is earthly and passing, that means you walk according to the flesh. If, however, you set your minds on the Spirit, that which is enduring, that which is heavenly, that means you walk according to the Spirit. So there's the first building block. They have different appetites. But Paul then inserts a second building block. You see, these appetites arise, secondly, from different conditions. And he now describes these conditions beginning in verse 6. To set the mind on the flesh, so over here, a carnal mind is what? It is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit, back over here, is what? Well, it's life and peace. For the mind, he jumps back over here again in verse 7, that is set on the flesh, is what? It is hostile to God. Okay, let's just cut to the chase. It hates God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Why? Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You sift through these three verses and it becomes pretty clear that Paul is drawing out four different marks, if you like. Four things, four contrasts, if you like, between a carnal mind and a spiritual mind. A carnal mind, firstly, is death. It says that in the sixth verse. 
To set the mind on the flesh is death. The spiritual mind is life. Verse 6, but to set the mind on the spirit is life. So there's the first contrast between these two. A carnal mind, a spiritual mind. A spiritual mind is death, alienated from God. A spiritual mind is life in communion with, in fellowship with God. There's a second point of differentiation. A carnal mind is at war with God. Verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Well, a spiritual mind is at peace with God. He said that back at the end of verse 6, to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. So there's a second distinguishing mark. Not only is the carnal mind death, but it is at war with God. Complete enmity, hostility with God. A spiritual mind is life, and it is reconciled to God. It is at peace with God. Now look at the third distinguishing mark between these two. A carnal mind is unable to obey God. Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. It's actually worse than that. It cannot. Absolutely impossible. Did you know the unbeliever cannot obey God? It is an absolute impossibility. Why? Because obedience, the only obedience that is acceptable to God, flows from love for God. In the unbeliever, although he or she may think the opposite, here's what's true. There really isn't any love for God. As a matter of fact, there is enmity toward God. There is hostility toward God. Therefore, even when the unbeliever does something that looks good, it's actually an act of disobedience because it is never done for the right motive. You see, the carnal mind cannot obey God. The inference, the implication is what? That the spiritual mind can. Why? Because something has changed. Something has been transformed. Something has been renewed in this individual whereby there is love for God and a desire to obey God. But now a fourth mark, distinguishing mark, a carnal mind, verse 8, is unable to please God. Nothing. Nothing that the unbeliever ever does is pleasing in the sight of God. Oh, I know that requires all sorts of qualification. I don't have the time to qualify it all, but let me, let me just insert a couple of thoughts here. We are, not saying, we are not saying that unbelievers never do things laudable, right? We are not saying that unbelievers never do right things. We are not saying unbelievers are incapable of doing good things that contribute to the good of society. That's not the point. We are talking about those things which have merit in the sight of God. We are talking about those things which are acceptable in the sight of God. Well, in a state of flesh, unregenerate condition, because the mind of the unbeliever is actually hostile toward God, then no matter what the believer ever does, good or bad, in the sight, the estimation of his fellow man, it is unacceptable in the sight of God because he who is in the flesh cannot even begin to please God. But the spiritual mind does please God because the actions and activities of the spiritual mind flow from 
and the Spirit. Two very different conditions. The carnal mind is the unregenerate. The spiritual mind is the regenerate. The carnal mind is the individual, the man or woman, who has never been born again, born above. The spiritual mind is the man or woman who is born of the Spirit. It is the difference between being unregenerate and generate. Regenerate. It is the difference between not being born again and being born again. Paul's point is, you see, this is the condition in which one of these two conditions in which, in which each and every one of us find ourselves. The carnal mind flowing from a carnal condition in God's sight whereby the heart is still unregenerate. The mind is darkened. Absolutely confused when it comes to spiritual truths and realities. And the heart, the heart is not inclined toward God. There, there are no seekers. There is no such thing as a seeker. Lots of people seeking a God made in their own image. But no unbeliever sincerely seeking the God of Scripture. Unbelievers flee from the God of Scripture because there is hostility between them and God. And a will, therefore, that is held captive to their darkened mind and their hardened heart. An unregenerate condition. For the individual has been born again. What has happened? The Spirit of God has taken up residence. And now there is some illumination. See things a little clearer. Not fully, that awaits glory. But certainly see things a little clearer now. Truths and realities. Our value system changes. The heart is softened. And the will is now free, liberated to obey God from an enlightened mind and a softened heart. Two conditions. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself declared, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. Two completely different appetites arising from two completely different conditions. Arising thirdly, and you've probably already guessed this, from two completely different occupants. The ninth verse. You, however, he's writing to the church at Rome, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact, here's why you are in the Spirit. It's nothing you've ever done. Here's why you're in the Spirit. Because the Spirit of God dwells. In you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who walks according to the Spirit. That walk is seen how? Firstly, in a very different appetite. He sets his mind on the things of the Spirit. That appetite flows from a very different condition whereby he has been born again. And that condition flows from a very different occupant. The Spirit of God now dwells within. The word, the terminology Paul uses there in verse 9 is very interesting. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. That verb dwell comes from the term for house. So it's not just that the Spirit of God enters in and then leaves. It's not that the Spirit of God takes up, kind of visits us like a motel or something like that and then leaves. 
No, He takes up continual residence. He dwells in us as if we were His house. And His dwelling produces what? A new birth. A new condition. His new, this new condition produces what? A new appetite, a new inclination. We're living for the things of the Spirit. And this new inclination gives evidence to what? That we walk according to the Spirit. That, and that alone, is a Christian. It begs three questions. In the first, I'm going to be quite challenging. At least I hope I'm going to be quite challenging. In the second and third, I want to be a little more pastoral. But here we are. Here we come. The first question. We now have a definition of what a Christian is. And here's the question I want us to seriously ponder. What is the frame of our heart? What is the frame of our heart? Again, to put it in, in, in slightly different terms. What is it we want? What is it we want? What is the frame, the disposition of our heart, our desires? What is the habitual bent of our hearts? Now, I have chosen my words carefully. I've chosen my words carefully because I'm not referring to specific acts, actions, activities. As a Christian, as a believer, as I take stock on my life, I see moments, and I see plenty of moments, where the flesh has reared its ugly head. And I have seen plenty of moments where my devotion to the flesh has usurped my devotion to the Spirit. I'm not asking about our, these, these, these actions or activities which happen over the course of life. The question is this. As you look back over a prolonged, protracted period of time, what is the habitual bent of your heart? Is it toward the things of the flesh? Earthly things? Or is it toward the things of the Spirit? The words of Christ, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me get even more specific. Can you say, as you look back, take stock, that God is your happiness? Can you say that God's Son is your Savior? Can you say that God's Spirit is your guide? Can you say that God's Word is your rule? Can you say that God's holiness is your desire? Can you say God's promises are your hope? Do you seek in scriptural terms, so there's no mistaking what I'm saying, do you seek first the kingdom of God? The answer to that question is the answer to the question I have posed. Do you walk according to the flesh or according to the Spirit? Do you seek first the kingdom of God? David Livingston, while living, penned the following. I place no value on anything except in relation to the kingdom of God. That's beautiful. Was he a perfect man? That is not my point. Did he sin? Absolutely. 
Were there moments of failure? Certainly. Oh, please, please do not misunderstand me. I am not speaking of individual actions or moments of time. I am talking about the habitual bent, inclination of your heart. As you take stock, the question is simply this. What are you living for? If you are living for the things of the flesh, yet claim the name Christian, you have deluded yourself. That is not me, surely, friends. That is simply what Paul is saying here, isn't it? That's simply his point. That to set the mind on the things of the flesh is to walk according to the flesh and it is to be in an unregenerate state. You must be born again. Oh, but to set the mind on the things of the Spirit, despite our failures and our sins and our ongoing struggle with sin, but to look back and see, yes, there is a bent that way, there is an inclination that, yes, sincerely before the Lord, it is, it is what I live for. Well, that is to walk according to the Spirit. It is the fruit of what? The new birth. It testifies to what? That the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ Himself, dwells in us. That leads me to my second point of application, my second question, pastorally, by way of comfort. Do you realize what it means to belong to Christ? Do, 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 you, do you taste the full implication of what it is to have the Spirit of God take up residence in you as if you were His home, to be operative in you in a manner he is not operative in the unbelievers. To be operative in terms of stirring the grace of God in you. Sealing you until the day of redemption. And what that means in terms of your possession. That ultimately, therefore, you belong to Christ. You belong to God. Because it is the Spirit of God. That's the text. It is the Spirit of Christ that dwells in you. Now here are the implications drawn out by David Murray. I find this so encouraging. He writes the following. We find a studio with a sculptor at work. He's thinking, imagining, creating, concentrating, inventing, improvising, innovating, beautifying, loving, hammering, smoothing, decorating, styling, and polishing. What's the sculptor's name? It is God. Listen to what Murray said. It is God at work on His latest masterpiece. What's the masterpiece? Look closely. Look closely. Christian, it is you. Me? A masterpiece? That's Scripture, folks. Murray goes on to say, yes, believer, you are God's masterpiece. Paul said that you are God's workmanship. But the Greek word can also be translated his masterpiece or his poem. I really like that one. I'm God's poem? I'm God's masterpiece? God is lavishing time and talent on you each and every day. He is weaving together the seemingly disconnected rhythms and rhymes of your life into an epic poem of grace. He is tapping away on the block of your humanity 
to produce an outstanding, living statue of grace. I belong to God. God has taken me as His possession. And God has given me His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whereby He is working in me, shaping me into something as His own cherished possession in Christ. Oh, there I find thanksgiving, calls for thanksgiving. Unmerited grace, the bedrock of thanksgiving. There I find tremendous encouragement despite my stumbling around in the dark, realizing that God is actually doing something. There I find identity. That it's not my flesh, it's not me, it's what the Spirit of Christ is doing in me. There I find security. That He actually has no problem in owning me. In claiming me for His own. And is operative in me by the Holy Spirit. What a tremendous source of encouragement. And now the third word of application, again, by way of question. Believer, do you seek to glorify God? Hear Paul's admonition in 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Spirit of God is given to us, His people. He's caused us to be born again. By virtue of the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, we belong to Him. He is the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God. Because we belong to Him, He has given Himself for us ownership. He owns us by election, doesn't He? We sang that earlier. My Lord, I did not choose you. Right? You've chosen me. He owns us by election before the foundation of the world, having chosen us in Christ Jesus. He owns us by redemption. He sent it. We read it early in Romans 8. He sent His beloved Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin in order to condemn sin in the flesh. He owns us by redemption. He purchases us by the blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He owns us by regeneration. He gives us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within, illuminates the mind, softens the heart, liberates the will. That's ownership. And He seals us for the day of redemption. Oh, He owns us by adoption. He makes us part of His family. He makes us sons, sonship. And He makes us co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. You, Christian, are not your own. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There is all the impetus. We come full circle. There is all the motivation you need in the context of verse 4 to do what? Not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Our Heavenly Father, we make this our prayer. We ask, obviously, by Your Spirit that You be operative in us this day and help us to understand not only what You have done for us in Christ Jesus, but what You are making us in Christ Jesus. And help us to appreciate this great gift that You've imparted to us. Give us understanding this day. Grant the unbeliever understanding. The individual who has walked in here, not pretending otherwise, knowing he, she is a long way from You. We pray that you might bring about conviction for sin and show them the truth of the gospel. We pray for that individual gathered here this day, this moment, 
who has been pretending and faking for so long, who has taken the name of Christ, who perhaps has even been baptized, who knows something of the Scriptures, and yet when take stock of life seriously, recognizes that their life has been lived for self, without any inclination or concern heavenward. And we pray that you would break down the obstinacy of their heart, show them their need for the new birth, and again show them your glory in Christ Jesus, and for your people gathered here at this moment. We pray that this tremendous truth that we belong to you might echo throughout the day and throughout this week, that we might know that you are not ashamed to claim us as your own, that you've taken us to yourself, and may you make it our daily ambition to glorify you in this world. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.